0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make or break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich. And I'm John Rizvold. And we are coming to you again. And today, the issue that we're going to be talking about is damages. But before we get into that, John, I know you just went through a new experience, you know, something that's becoming more common, but it was new for you. You just had a mediation by Zoom. Why don't you tell us a little about that and how it went?
1: I did. It was great. So I had a a big case that um, had uh, a big statute of limitations coming up and there would have been probably a pretty big uh, press component. It would have gotten a lot of news coverage given the the nature of the case. It involved some sexual assault allegations. Um, And we were able to get into mediation uh, despite everything being closed over Zoom. Uh, And it was really interesting. So The parties and the insurance adjusters, myself, um, and defense counsel were all present. We had a judge uh, at ADR, uh, Ron Suter, a former chief judge of DuPage County, uh, who was a great mediator. And they broke us out into separate rooms, and he just bounced back and forth. And it was really very similar to how a normal mediation would work, except that I'm sitting in my office at my house. And my clients are sitting in their living room and we're all staring at a screen. The only difficulty um, is that you're not with your client, at least it, it, right now as it stands. I mean, in the future, I think it'll be very easy to sit in a conference room at our office and uh, have the clients there and do it all via Zoom um, in the future just because the technology is so great. The technology is is a wonder. I mean, we're using it right now to communicate and to to record parts of this podcast and everything else. It's unbelievable that uh, the legal industry, I think, is so far behind in terms of tech and everything else because this technology is really making it seamless to continue to do our jobs and help our clients. It was a really cool experience. I liked
0: it a lot. That's excellent. Were you able to get the case resolved?
1: We did. it. We started the mediation at about quarter to nine And we settled it at about quarter to 6 p.m. So it was a very long day of sitting in front of a laptop, Um, very long day of negotiations, but we were able to get it done. I can't tell you for how much, um, but it was a very, very good result for the clients. Uh, They're very happy um, and we're, we're happy we're able to get them some
0: justice. That's a great, always great to have a good result at the end of a long day mediation. Um, one question, honestly, because I have one coming up at the end of the month. Is there an opportunity for you and the mediator to talk separately without the presence of your client or they're just two separate rooms that the mediator bounces back and forth between?
1: Yeah, so um, there are typically just two rooms in my experience doing it once, right? There's two rooms (laughs) bouncing back and forth. uh, The judge is bouncing back and forth between the way that we handled it was the judge gave me a cell phone number and then we would have separate phone conversations. And I just explained to my clients, there's going to be times that the judge is only going to want to talk to me to explain some logistical thing to me um, or some strategic thing to me. And uh, you don't need to worry about those conversations. That's what you hired me for. And they were very receptive to that. I think you know, before you can go into a mediation before you can be successful at mediation, because a lot of them are not successful before you can be successful. I think your client has to really trust you, which I think means you have to get to know your client as a human being. You have to really learn who they are and see them as a friend and see them as somebody that you want to represent. So that, that makes a huge difference when they trust you, that you can have those sort of, uh, off the, off the, off the record conversations with the judge.
0: Right and I think that's so important. Uh, some of the mediations that I've seen go sideways were exactly for that reason is that the mediators and the attorneys ended up talking shop in front of the clients or it came to my attention usually afterwards that that's what occurred and, and that led to the mediation going south. So I think it's important for your client to understand that that's something that can happen and it probably will happen in the course of a mediation and that there's the opportunity for that to occur because it's important like you said to address some uh, certain strategic issues and other issues that, you know, outside the presence of a client that will ultimately be to their benefit.
1: Right. Right. Of course. Um, And to that end, a lot of what the off the record conversations that uh, you tend to have are, are about damages. They're about framing your damages, what your damages really are, and sometimes explaining and using the judge to help you explain reasonable expectations to your clients. Or um, in this case, it was Look, we're going to resolve this case without setting foot in a courtroom. Do you really want to dredge all of this back up in front of people, in a deposition, in front of a jury? And then keep in mind as well, we haven't really spent any case costs yet. We haven't hired experts except for sort of preliminary reviews. They haven't testified, they haven't given depositions, they haven't written reports. So, right now, you know, you got to get to X settlement to make up for those potential costs. At trial it 18 to 24 months down the line so explaining some of those logistics to the client um, it's helpful to have the judge do that um, and then you can explain to them sort of the damages and, and everything else um, in a way that
0: they understand absolutely so today we're gonna to have an interview that I did with Pat Salvi and Pat was very generous with his time and also very generous with his experience and his insight into how to present your damages case at trial, and also how to leverage the damages evidence that you've accumulated to achieve favorable settlements. So he, for him, and and I think this is absolutely true, uh, damages starts in jury selection. Uh, You wanna ask the hard questions, you wanna see what the jury really thinks about your issues of damages when it comes to pain and suffering, when it comes, especially in wrongful death cases. You know, there's some people who feel wrong and they feel like they can't put a price on someone's life or or their loss of life. And you need to flesh that out to figure out whether or not that person can play a part in this trial, because uh, it's a matter of following the law. And that's where the law begins. So jury selection, he talks about that. Um, he talked about structuring your cases effectively to maximize the impact of your damages witnesses. Uh, which was a great part of the interview. He talks about starting with the bad conduct to frame the rest of your case, you know, kind of setting the stage, because if they're not believing on liability, all that damages information, all that damages testimony and evidence is going right out the window.
1: Yeah, if they don't believe the defendant's at fault, they don't get a chance to, you know, assign any sort of value to what's been lost or taken.
0: Absolutely, and we got into some of the details, you know, about the different elements of pain. Uh, how, how does a specific injury cause pain? And you have to have testimony from doctors uh, and medical experts to talk about. Okay, this person has a disc herniation. This person has, you know, an unoperated hip how is this injury causing them pain and why will it continue to cause them pain for, you know, the rest of their life or until they get a replacement or whatever the facts of your particular case may be. And he talked about the importance of this because, you know, having tried as many cases as Pat has, you know, he has an understanding of, you know, what the jurors think about what really sticks with them, what resonates with them in the jury room. And those are the kind of details that tend to you know, make the more skeptical jurors a little more sure? Because I think, John, you, you know as well as I do that everyone's a little bit skeptical of someone who's going into court suing for being hurt. Yeah,
1: they don't trust us automatically. And I think that um, you know, that's, that's human nature. Anybody that's asking for money in any sense um, is somebody that we are immediately a little bit distrustful of. So I, I think you are spot on when you say, you, know, you gotta explain the why why is this going to continue to cause pain? Why are these damages um, given the value that they're given? I think if you can explain the why to jurors and you can explain it in a way that um, you know, really lays it out for them that, look, we're not asking you to give us money. This isn't some sort of you know, game. This is fair value compensation for losses. If you lost wages because uh, you were in, a, in an accident you're entitled to those lost wages. I think economic damages are really, really easy for jurors to understand. These are the these are the value of the bills. These are the value of the lost wages. Um, those make sense. But when you start getting into sort of the more amorphous things, the way I like to explain it to friends, and I can't do this in front of a jury, but the way I like to explain it to friends, and sometimes even clients, is to say, if I were to give you a million dollars right now, would you um, tear the rotator cuff? in your right shoulder, just like you did in your left shoulder. And every single time they say no. So well, that's how we have to try to explain it to a jury. We can't use those sort of golden rule arguments, but we have to make it that clear to a jury that they wouldn't want this to happen to our client again and that what happened to our client was
0: wrong. Absolutely. Um, in addition to you know, kind of articulating damages, we also talked about preparing your client to testify, because obviously that's going to be the cornerstone of your damages argument, is having your client testify, having your client be a likable, believable witness. And Pat kind of touched on this, but I want—it's I, worth talking about more. Uh, he talked about preparing your client for cross examination. Obviously, the direct examination—you know—it's the attorney's job to get the information out of the client. It's the client's job to tell their story as best they can. But then on, on cross examination, the roles are kind of different, you know, and, and it's easy for even a sophisticated client to get disoriented during the course of a cross examination and Pat talked about this, um, they talk about this in, in the reptile book and others is having these kind of major truths, these fundamental aspects of your case of what happened to your client that are irrefutable, and that your client can sort of fall back and rely upon to kind of steer them back on the right course when they get led astray on cross-examination. That's huge,
1: that's absolutely huge, Um, you know, Nobody has been cross-examined before, by and large. They don't know what it's like. You know, When I'm preparing a client for cross-exam, I like to have somebody else do it while I'm there, present. That way, I still maintain rapport. They don't look at me like some sort of bad guy. And then this third party, whether it be a friend or co-counsel or whoever the second chair is or whatever it might be, really beats them up. And I mean, just really get after them really go after their credibility and everything else so that they can test the waters but the thing i explain to clients time and again and i'm sure you do too is credibility is king if you are not telling the truth if you are exaggerating if you are in any way shape or form um stretching the truth you're done this is this is the time to absolutely tell the truth 100% even if you think the truth might hurt you because absolutely. your credibility is important
0: right if, if you're not credible they're not listening to you no matter how good your testimony is so it, it doesn't matter couldn't agree more on that for sure um pat also talked a little bit about using the jury instructions to argue for damages i'm not gonna i'm not even gonna attempt to explain it because he explained <laughs> it so well uh i will just let it be but listen it's great stuff it is i've seen him do it too i've yeah. seen him
1: do it it's awesome it's, yeah. they do a really good job
0: yeah The the great lawyers absolutely he also talked about, and this is important for everybody, and I need to remind myself of this, I know, as much as anybody, is Pat talked about how when he goes to trial every morning, he wants to be the most energetic attorney in the courtroom. He wants to come into trial with the energy that people respond to, and that when he gets up, people go, okay, this I need to listen to this. And I think that's so important because you know trials are a slog, especially if you have one that's going on a week, two weeks, three weeks. It's a lot mentally... It's a lot physically, and it's easy to kind of fall into a rhythm and not bring the energy that you need to, uh, to the courtroom. And, and I think that's just, it's something, it's so simple, and it's so basic, but I feel like it's, it's even more important um, to come into the courtroom in the morning and, and think about the energy that you need to bring to the day. And I thought that was great advice, and it's something that I certainly will be reminding myself uh, at the, every day of my next trial.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Your mindset is so vitally important. Your mindset and your energy and your ability to be positive and, and your likable self. I think that's incredible advice. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to dive in.
0: Absolutely. So now we'll, we'll get to the interview. No more summarizing. Here it's straight from Pat Salvi, um, managing partner of the Chicago office, Salvi Shostak and Pritchard, and my conversation with him about damages. All right, today we'll be talking with Patrick Salvi II. Pat is the managing partner of the Chicago office of Salvi, Shostak, and Pritchard at the ripe old age of 37, is it Pat? 37, 37. Pat already has a long history of achieving incredible results for his clients. His recent trial victories include a record nine-figure verdict, four eight-figure verdicts, and four seven-figure verdicts. His recent settlements include five eight-figure settlements and many seven-figure settlements. Pat, I just want to thank you for coming on the show, and I'm looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I appreciate it, and and I'm looking forward to the discussion. So we could have you on for many different things, but the thing that we want to talk about today is damages. Um, As we talked about, you have a, a history of achieving these great results for your clients, and You know, obviously, a big part of that is not only proving the wrongful conduct of the defendant, but then taking to the next step and proving up all of your elements of damages uh, to the most that the case will allow for. Uh, And I wanted to ask you in a general sense, when it comes to damages, you know, there's kind of a discrepancy of thought within the plaintiff's bar about focusing on the conduct of the defendant versus the agony and the harms and losses of the plaintiff. Well, obviously, the harms and losses need to be addressed. Where do you kind of fall on that continuum?
2: Well, I think that um, whenever you're trying a case, particularly with uh, catastrophic injuries, uh, you want to be able to uh, talk about the conduct. Uh, I think it's important to put everything in context. I think it allows for the jury to, you know, look at all the parties um, and and evaluate all of the evidence. And so, to give you an example. Um, I will uh, do things sometimes to try to avoid an admission of liability. Uh, You will want to do things such as bring a a punitive damages motion to uh, ensure that the conduct of the defendant remains at issue. Uh, You may want to uh, file a motion for summary judgment if you uh, think that your opponent is going to uh, admit liability uh, in order to, at a minimum, have the court tell the jury Uh, that there was a finding of liability versus uh, the defendant's admitting liability. And so uh, to juxtapose a case where you get to go through the conduct uh, of the defendant and show the jury what the defendant did uh, versus one where there's admitted liability and the defendant can uh, get before the jury and say, well, we've admitted uh, that we made a mistake uh, we did something we shouldn't have done and we're, and we're very sorry for that. Uh, but we're here because the plaintiff wants so much money. Uh, uh, that's something that you want to avoid. And so um, uh, certainly every case is different and there might be uh, various reasons why an admission liability is beneficial to your client. But uh, it is, it is my uh, a deep feeling that we are, enhancing damages when we're able to get before the jury and, and make them angry. And it really and it really starts with um, uh, the adverse examination of the defendant. Um, I spend an inordinate amount of time in preparing for that uh, because that is just so important to the jury opening up their minds and their hearts to really consider, the agony of the plaintiff, the harms and losses that the plaintiff has suffered. uh, Because I don't look at it necessarily as being a situation where I, as the plaintiff's attorney, I'm not trying to deflect the jury away from the actual uh, injuries my uh, client has sustained uh, and have them focus on bad conduct so that they're impassioned and give an unfairly high verdict. I think to the contrary, Uh, just the way that defense lawyers will oftentimes focus and nitpick and cherry pick uh, various records uh, when it's an admitted liability case to try to focus on the plaintiff and put all the eyes on the plaintiff. I think when you're focusing on the conduct of the defendant before you get to damages, uh, what you do for the jury is, is you show them, look, this is really truly a victim. And so now let's look at what, uh, that misconduct has caused
0: and it sets the stage for that. So when you're preparing your case for trial and you're conducting your, uh, adverse examination of the defendant, is that something you want at the very beginning of your case or do you save it for the end or does it uh, depend on the case?
2: Yeah, it it depends on the case, but I think for the most part it's early and Uh, What I try to do, and sometimes it can be challenging with expert schedules and and, uh, doctor schedules when you're talking about treating physicians, things of that nature. What I try to traditionally do, and I think it's uh, most effective, and and there might be some exceptions, but the first thing I want to do is convince the jury that, and I'm talking about evidence now. The first thing I want to do is show the jury that we're in the right, that there's a reason we're here. This is a meritorious case. We deserve to win, this was bad conduct. Uh, then, uh, if you're if you're off and running, and you are um, and you've put your best foot forward as it relates to the negligence, then you get to causation, and causation is a proximate cause when you look at the standard. Uh, and I think rightfully so, it is a very reasonable standard that allows for uh, a, a, a broad causation standard in Illinois, a proximate cause, not the last or nearest, doesn't have to be the most substantial. It just needs to be a cause where in the natural and ordinary sequence of events it would produce the injury. Uh, and so once you are once you have the jury with you on the conduct, then, then you're in a better position to bring your causation evidence before them. Uh, and now they're with you on conduct and causation as you start to bring your damages evidence. Uh, And so it's much more compelling. Uh, If you don't win right off the bat and then you start talking about damages, if you don't have the jury with you on liability, your witnesses on damages are not, are not really going to be given much attention and nor will your closing argument. And uh, when the defense experts and the defense witnesses get in front of the jury, Uh, you know, they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. So I think you got to do it early. And, um, I think there are certain cases where you want to do it first, but I think you better be darn sure. You're going to, uh, really enrage the jury that the jury is, uh, not going to believe the defendant, not going to sympathize, empathize with the defendant, uh, because uh, what, you, what you may want to do, and what I, I've done in cases, is you put up a real good, whether it's an expert or some other witness of the case, some witness that sets the stage a little bit. It's not antagonistic. It gets facts out there, uh, and it sets the stage. I'll give you just a quick example. In our brain damage baby verdict from uh, uh, late 2018, Uh, It was a a, a substantial verdict and one of the things we did that I thought was very effective is the first witness We put on was the was the resident. It was a brain damaged baby case. It was a a birth injury a a delay in uh, Doing a c-section and the negligent administration of Pitocin that led to fetal distress intolerance to labor lack of oxygen and brain damage and so the resident set the stage because she was the resident uh, obstetrician that was there from the beginning when mom came into the hospital, when the field monitor strips were looking very good, there was every indication this was a healthy baby. And that was uh, that was uh, somewhat devastating to the defense's case as it related to causation that the child had been uh, injured previously before the mother even got to the hospital for labor and delivery. Then we showed how Over the course of time that she was on the uh, case, when she was treating the patient, that there was deterioration of the baby's condition. And so that set the stage for when the attending obstetrician picked up uh, uh, from there after she was, uh, her shift had ended, and he's the one that is ignoring this deterioration. And so that was an example where you have a real good lead in uh, to the uh, defendant as the adverse witness um so it does depend on the case but i i am very much an advocate of putting that up front and i am also as i said a, a few minutes ago an advocate of in preparation uh what i do is i spend a really a disproportionate amount of time because i know just how important the adverse examination of the defendant is when the jury ultimately goes back to deliberate they're going to remember how they felt in their gut uh about the defendant uh whether they believed him or her uh, they're going to remember that and so you need you need the impression you leave from that examination uh to be outstanding
0: otherwise you're going to be in trouble um as a segue you're talking about impressions of the jury and things that stay with the jury when they're going back into deliberations Um, I know as attorneys, we all want to uh, improve our language and make sure that we're naming things at trial and we're talking about the issues at trial in a way that sticks, in a way that resonates with the jury. What kinds of things do you do when you're preparing for trial to kind of create those little sound bites, those little phrases that stay with the jury when uh, the case is ultimately done and they're back in the uh, deliberations? Well, I think what's important um,
2: for any trial lawyer to understand, um, you can't, and, and this goes for so many things, it goes for what you just described as phrases that you want to be part of your theme. It goes for, uh, uh, and, I, and I know uh, it's something that we may want to talk about, but uh, uh, the amount of money that you're going to be suggesting in closing argument. Uh, a jury trial is such—it's—it's um, it's such a statement on human psychology. It touches on everything. It touches on, uh, you know, people's hereditary predisposition, their genetics, how they feel about things, how they were raised, how they consume uh, news, how they consume the world at large. And then what those experiences that they bring to the courtroom so impact how they hear the evidence and the context in which they absorb the evidence. And then beyond that, it is whether you're able to persuade them and whether you're able to uh, give them that ammunition that they actually remember. Uh, I think so frequently lawyers think that uh, any one question was a gotcha moment when the witness said yes and and that that is actually uh, not typically how these trials are decided. It's not about uh, walking the witness through uh, a logic game and getting them to admit that which is obvious, but rather, it's about touching the jurors in their minds and in their hearts as to how they really feel about how society ought to operate. And so when you talk about phrases, Um, or just otherwise trying to uh, get jurors in the frame of mind that you want them to be in. It's something that has to start in jury selection and then be uh, carried out throughout the trial uh, all the way through closing argument. And so, you know, one of the very classic examples, uh, and there are various permutations to it, uh, but Rick Friedman's Rules of the Road talking about safety rules. Very classic example. It's it's actually gotten so much attention and so much. Uh, it, it has such an effect that it's actually the subject of motions and limine that defendants file to prevent plaintiffs from talking about safety in the context of what reasonable care is in, in in our society. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. That you wouldn't be able to talk about safety. But I will. I I I do follow some of that advice and sit down. Uh, at depositions with defendant corporate representatives or the defendant or the defense experts and go through safety rules, you know, three, four, five, eight safety rules, not too many, but enough and cover your case and have them acknowledge it, uh, that this is a safety rule. And if, and if they don't agree, then you, you work through it to get an agreement. Uh, and you, uh, you know, assuming you've chosen a meritorious case to file and pursue, you should be able to establish some safety rules that were broken or at least safety rules that everybody agrees exist. And then you know what the facts and circumstances of your case will support. So it's hard to put, you know, any, uh, you know, term uh, into every case. uh, But certainly I think the the, the more important advice is what you do to turn, when you make a determination as you're preparing for a trial, You got to make sure the jury, you think to yourself, I need the jury to remember this, or I need the jury to think this about a particular topic. Don't think it's going to sink in because you mentioned it once or twice, because you said it in opening and then in closing. No, no. It needs to be a consistent theme. It needs to be like a drumbeat. Um, And it should really start in jury selection, because I find that jury selection is uh, without question the most opportune time, assuming you get adequate time to make sure that number one, you're getting jurors that have an open mind and are going to listen to you, but then also putting things into the appropriate frame right from the beginning. Um, You know, so for example, in medical malpractice cases, one of the major concerns that we have are jurors that even if they think the doctor did something wrong, they're just uncomfortable sitting in judgment of a professional. They don't have a medical degree they're uncomfortable with it. And so it is my philosophy. You confront those issues head on. You don't uh, dance around them. You confront them head on. Uh, and you and you ask, does anybody here feel uh, as though you may have some trouble, even a little bit, sitting in judgment of a physician, given that you're lay people, you're not doctors, Uh, but with the help of experts, will you be able to do so? And and you ask various questions like that. And so um, I'm getting a little afield from the question, but I think think my main point is that uh, you got to carry it all the way through. That's the key.
0: Feel free to go afield. This is great stuff, so (laughs) keep going with it. I want to switch gears just a little bit. I know that uh, a topic that is discussed among the plaintiff's bar is the concept of being anchored. When you get a case where you have a big impact on a person's life, um, but sometimes the economic damages aren't really in proportion to what the non-economic damages are. Um, what, What do you think about the concept of anchoring, and have you ever tried a case without putting the economic damages in as an element of damage? I have,
2: and I think it's a very important concept that plaintiff's lawyers need to understand. So, um, you know, the concept of anchoring being that if if I ask for $10,000 for funeral and burial expenses and then $10 million for loss of society, what impact does it have that I'm seeking uh, $10,000 over here uh, to the fact that I'm seeking $10 million uh, over there, Um, because clearly, uh, uh, when you talk about your, uh, and when I'm talking about funeral and burial expenses, of course, I'm talking about a wrongful death case. Clearly the major aspect of the injury, uh, the damages in such a case is the loss of society. And then also the grief, sorrow, and mental suffering. And so, um, jurors have, uh, only so much bandwidth, Um, And so the first concept I would say is let's focus the jury on that which is most important. Now, I'm a proponent of having many elements of damages uh, because they, number one, the plaintiff is entitled to them under the law. And number two, uh, that's one way for the total damages to add up uh, as it should. Pain and suffering is different than loss of a normal life, is different than disfigurement And so if a seven figure amount belongs on all three of those lines, then that's going to add up to uh, either many millions or even an eight figure amount. And and that's how it should be. Uh, And so um, uh, with respect to anchoring, uh, number one on the, on the medical bills issue. Yes. I had a case where uh, my client suffered a, a pelvic fracture, multiple pelvic fractures, but it wasn't operative. So it wasn't, the type of fracture that necessarily required an operation. She was in the hospital for a couple of days. She went to a rehab facility for two weeks, had some physical therapy thereafter. Uh, But beyond that, it was a pain case. It was a case where uh, the the neural foramen, uh, so where the nerves exit in the lowest part of the spine, was not only was there a bony fracture, but it uh, caused a nerve injury. Um, and so the details of that were very important, but also not much in the way of economic damages. And so the medical bills in that case was $20,000 roughly. Um, but we were going, but this was a 20 something year old girl, early twenties who had 60 plus years of life expectancy. And we were going to be seeking a far substantial sum Uh, far, uh, far more than $20,000. And so the calculation was, not only is that going to hurt, that's going to take away from what the jury can focus on. It's going to uh, uh, essentially introduce something that just isn't that important. And so um, we don't want that $20,000 to have any sort of an impact on what we think are the more significant damages. And so you forego the $20,000, understanding that it means your non-economic request uh, will not have that anchoring effect where they're looking at, in that case, I think we asked for a little over 3 million, we ended up getting a little over 2 million. Uh, And it was was essentially, uh, we did have a future wage loss claim, uh, but it was essentially 90 plus percent non-economic damages, Um, and I think if we would have introduced the medical bills, uh, that may have uh, anchored the total damages down. And the interesting story, and, and the proof is really in the pudding, because at the end of our case in chief, we went to rest. You know, we told the judge, we have no more witnesses, we rest. And the defense lawyer said, well, what about the medical bills? And I said, well, we're not putting the medical bills into evidence. And he made a motion to the court to put the medical bills in himself. Yeah. And he says, Judge, they sandbag me. And and it was uh, Judge Suriano. He had a great line. He goes, yeah, they you're telling me they sandbag you by, by uh, withdrawing a claim? That doesn't make any sense. They should really sandbag you and non-suit the case. And it was like, yeah that makes no sense. We're the plaintiffs. We get to make the claims that we want to make strategically as we want to make them. And I am very much a proponent of carefully analyzing whether your economic damages, if they're low, are going to have a limiting effect on how the jury looks at the rest of your damages when you're seeking significant compensation.
0: You know, I'd heard an anecdote, defense attorneys trying to do that, but I've never actually spoken to someone where that occurred in a case of theirs. And that it's just an unbelievable thing that you somehow withdraw you're taking a line item off the verdict form is somehow prejudicial.
2: And 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 think about that concept for a moment, because I always look at these things. You know, um, as plaintiffs' lawyers, we have an obligation to our client to deploy strategies that maximize their damages. That's our job. But we also have uh, an obligation uh, to you know bring the truth to the jury and have them deliberate with an open mind. And so what a tragedy it would be if the pain and suffering of this young girl was somehow diminished because various jurors wanted to juxtapose her pain and suffering to her medical bills, which were artificially low based upon the severity of the injury, given that it happened to be a non-operative pelvic fracture that didn't necessarily require a lot of care and treatment going forward. It just required our client to endure a lot of pain and suffering and limping and uh, 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 on a daily basis, having to deal with this for 60 years for that to be diminished simply because her medical bills weren't very high. uh, To me, that's not fair and it's our job to make that calculation and do what's best for our client. And the defense obviously wanted damages to be lower uh, so uh, by virtue of their comparing the non-economic ass to the economics of the case. And so in that case, we effectively prevented them from doing so. And I th- and I think, I don't know if, you know, I th- I don't think a judge should ever allow a defendant to do that uh, ju- just to get past this uh, anchoring issue. You know, I, theoretically, I could potentially see some reason it might be relevant, uh, but absent some other relevance the defense should not be able to make a claim for the plaintiff just because it, they think it'll draw
0: away from other claims. That's that's not fair. to agree with you more on that. Uh, jumping topics just a little bit. Um, in any damages case, you know your key witnesses are going to be obviously your client if they're still around, um, family members, friends, but. I, I'm sure that achieving some of the results that you've had, you've had to look beyond the normal scope of damage witnesses to find something uh, compelling to a jury. Uh, what are some unusual places where you've been able to find damages evidence? Sure. I So I, I do think that when you're looking for damages
2: evidence, you need to consider carefully uh, and ask multiple times your plaintiff, who might, who in their lives might be helpful with respect to damages. And, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times these come from obvious sources, but it requires, uh, uh diligence in order to find it, particularly the specific. So, uh, in this uh, same case I had been describing where we didn't put the medical bills into evidence, um, uh, this was a, a, a girl who was on her bike, she was crossing the street, she was doing everything uh, she was supposed to be doing, and a, and a car turned left, uh, the light was green, and uh, uh, hit her while she was in, in a crosswalk, and um, uh, it was a pretty strong liability case, and we were we were actually, I thought, somewhat fortunate that the defense did not try to admit liability. We were able to put the conduct in, and so with respect to the damages evidence, one of the most Compelling aspects of that case, and and sometimes the best evidence uh, is right in front of you, but you, you you have to think carefully about it. We put her dad on on the stand, and uh, what you do in your diligence is you 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 got to figure out what's going to make it real. I mean, think about it. You by the time you get to trial, the plaintiff has lived through. or her injury for two three or more years so many moments so many hours whether spent in a hospital in an operating room in a rehab facility or at home in pain not being able to work uh dealing you know going from doctor to doctor to therapy appointment to therapy appointment whatever the case may be over the course of two three more years and you're trying to condense that into a week or two weeks or three weeks for, uh, what would be a long trial and having the jury understand what they've gone through. I mean, it's nearly impossible if you're just trying to marshal the evidence out there, it's not going to really work. And so what are those trigger points where you actually are able to give the jury a real true glimpse into the impact that this injury has had? And so with that, um, uh witness the father, he was asked a question about when he first found out that his daughter had been injured. And this is a pretty stoic guy, kind of a uh uh very straight and narrow and and uh you know kind of your typical uh suburban dad who has uh two kids and and tries to keep them in line and uh you know one of those fellas uh doesn't seem like the kind of guy that shows a ton of emotion. And so maybe five or 10 minutes into his direct examination, because it wasn't long. The whole direct was probably less than 30 minutes to maybe 20 minutes. So about five, 10 minutes into it, he was asked, well, do uh, do you remember how you found out? And he started describing how he found out about his daughter getting hurt. And you could just tell the the fear that he felt um, and the sadness that his little girl was hurt. And it's all backed up by the medical evidence, right? I had already shown the jury. She had, fractured her pelvis in multiple places. And so that was a glimpse into how this injury had impacted this plaintiff. And it was through the window of her father explaining how he heard about the injury, he starts tearing up. And I wasn't exactly sure how that case was going, but when I saw three jurors tearing up with him, um, I felt a lot better about the case. Uh, kind of emboldened me. There were settlement negotiations going, you know, uh, uh, ongoing, and it kind of emboldened me when I saw that because jurors don't usually cry if they either think you shouldn't win on liability or if they think your uh, injury claim is is illegitimate. So um, that that's one that that's one that has always resonated with me. Now, the other place that I would implore people to look, other than really digging for those trigger points, because it's not it's not obvious. In one case, it might be uh asking a particular witness, just like in that case, how did you find out about it? In another case, it might be something different. Maybe somebody was trying to go back to work and it was just clearly uh not going to happen. And that was devastating for the plaintiff and somebody else observed that and and maybe that's a trigger point, something that opens up the window and gives the jury a glimpse of what of of really truly what's going on here. Um, But I also implore plaintiff's lawyers to look at the details as carefully as you can. And so, um, you know, damages uh, evidence, it comes through in stories and in compelling testimony, but it also comes through, I think, in great education. And find an expert, or if you're lucky and you have a treater, find somebody who's going to be able to explain the minute details. Um, Uh, as to why the plaintiff is experiencing this pain. What's going on in those nerve cells uh, that is causing this plaintiff to experience uncontrollable and uh, just unbearable pain? Or what is it about the deprivation of oxygen that then leads the brain cells to die, never to come back, and why in that region of the brain Did it lead to this plaintiff uh, not having various function anymore? Bowel, bladder function, control of their motor function, cognitive function. And really show them the details, right? Have a demonstrative exhibit that an expert can walk through. Walk them through it in opening statement. Do it with an expert or more. Talk about it again in closing. Uh, Pique their interest uh, in jury selection. Uh, because I, I think that the details are what is most persuasive. Um, so I, I, I really focus on the details because when the jury understands that, they understand better the legitimacy uh, of your client's injury because that's always at issue uh, in every case is whether the plaintiff is credible uh, and whether their injury
0: is being portrayed accurately. So to show them that, show them the details. That's an excellent point. And that kind of segues into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I know personally one of the most agonizing things for me is trying to get my client ready for trial. You know, getting them comfortable with the whole situation, getting comfortable with the courtroom, with the judge, with the jury, and having them talk about this injury, this thing that happened to them that was so hurtful and so painful. And I wanted to know if you had any ideas to help clients open up and share those details. Um, with the jury in a way that um, that makes them as comfortable as possible and allows them to uh, get across the information that the jury needs to help decide their case yeah I tell I tell all my clients a
2: couple of things. One thing I tell them is that uh, when you're on the stand, this is your only shot. Uh, so um, there's really no use in holding back uh, trying to be tough. Uh, uh, you just have to be open and honest and really bear your soul, spill your guts. And, you know, every plaintiff is, every client is different. Some are, some are more willing to do that. Some are better at it. And so, uh, you have to make judgment calls as to what level of detail you go into. Do you want to have them up for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or does it have to be much longer than that? They, with, in what level of detail do they have to go into liability? Um, you know, so you have to make a lot of judgment calls in that regard, but with respect to damages, I tell them, uh, open yourself up and, and number, and, and actually I should say before you even get to that point, you want to create the halo effect, right? You want, by the time your client gets up on the stand, because I always, if they're not last, they're close to last, uh, by the time they get up on the stand, the jury should be thinking, Hey, this person is a victim because you've already put all your witnesses on to prove your liability case. Uh, B, this injury is legitimate. You've put on your doctors, you've put on your experts, you've shown, look at this injury. It's bad. Here's the effect it's had. Uh, And this is from a scientific and medical perspective. And so when you, and and then, and then perhaps with uh, other lay witnesses, uh, they, they get to know them a little bit. They get to like them a little bit. They think of them not as a plaintiff looking for money, which is probably how a lot of them, Thought of the plaintiff when they first walked in and uh, to serve on the jury, but by the time they testify, they're they're thinking completely differently. This is a human being who's been harmed. Now I got to hear. Now I want to hear from them as to as to what if uh, what the effect has been. So then they get more of the benefit of the doubt, and 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 tell your plaintiff um, uh, that they should expect they 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 have that whether it's true or not. Tell them they have that. Make them you know make them confident. So that they can get up there and spill their guts uh, in in the in the right way. Uh, So I want them to be open. I want them to act as if it's just me and them talking at their house, just like when we were preparing. Uh, But then, in addition to that, so that I don't put too much pressure on them, I remind them that while their slice of the pie is an important one and perhaps bigger than any other witness, it's still just a slice of the pie. It's still just. you know, some percentage, it's not everything. And so just remember that you have your role and just fill your role. Uh, and then in that context of filling your role, always make sure they have that fallback, that foundation on which they can fall back on if the going gets tough. And I always tell them the direct examination, it's my, it's my job. You're just answering my questions. It's my job to get that out of you. So uh, but then when it's cross-examination, then you have a job and you've got to answer those questions as best you can. And, and I tell them, don't change your demeanor. You know, don't look at the defense lawyer cross-eyed and don't go from answering very directly with my questions to being very evasive with theirs. you got to have the same demeanor. Be yourself with me and with the defense counsel. Otherwise, they're not going to believe you. Because uh, I've I've seen uh, I've seen witnesses give beautiful direct examinations to uh, where it completely is lost on the jury when the jury sees their demeanor on cross. So I never want that to happen, particularly with the plaintiff. But then on cross examination, you know, generally where the defense is going to go. So you got to have some answers ready, but then also make sure they have that general foundation. They can always fall back on the fact that you broke your arm or. You've been diagnosed with this uh, herniated disc, or uh, if it's a more serious uh, injury, even than that, you've got an amputation, or you have some level of paralysis, or there's been a brain injury, and you give them ways to fall back on the very basics of their of their uh, case, uh, and by and without ever being combative, uh, things that are irrefutable. Where even if a record here and there is brought out by the defense to say, "Oh, look how you improved over here," uh, and uh, and then you had six months without treatment over there, we well, want to have an answer for that, and it usually comes from uh, uh, at whatever level of severity the injury is that that severity. Um, so those are just those are some those are some hints that I like to give plaintiffs because at the end of the day, what you 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 want them in the right frame of mind. So they come across as credible and likable. That's the most important thing, that they're credible and they leave a good impression uh, on the jury. If, if that's accomplished, and you can mix in a few uh, good moments, which we all know. I mean, I described one earlier with the father who teared up, uh, I've got one more where uh, uh, a physiatrist uh, was testifying and was talking about our client who has to fully catheterize four times, four to six times a day because she had a spinal cord injury and she's got bladder control issues. So she has to use a fully catheter four times a day. And so uh, he, he uh, we had a model there, uh, a model of the anatomy. So he could show what you have to do to catheterize, to, to use a fully catheter. And you know, it's a process. You put the lubricant on, you first you take the thing out of the packaging, you put the lubricant on, you put it, you know, and he showed the whole process from beginning to end. And then, and then right when he's, he was done, he looks at the jury, he goes, and then three, four hours later, you do it again. And it was just the perfect, you just the kind of deadpan, the perfect way to articulate what a, what a miserable thing they have to do multiple times a day, every day for the rest of your life. I think that big picture preparation is very important don't get too bogged down in the question to question preparation but think big picture preparation what you're trying to accomplish and how you can ensure that when the plaintiff leaves the stand the story she she told here she told the damages here she described credible and leaves a lasting impression
0: on the jury because that's the key Absolutely. We've been talking a lot about trial so far. And, you know, as we know, small percentage of cases actually go to trial. Most of them resolve before that in the form of a settlement. Um, What do you do? And are there any ideas that you have for other attorneys out there for an effective presentation of damages evidence to insurance companies to make them hit those high dollar marks like you've achieved in uh, some of your past cases?
2: Yeah, I do think that, um, when you're going to mediation, you have to think about the information that's being communicated to the decision maker. So Matt, you know, I mean, you've, you've been on both sides. And so uh, you know how that works and that gives you uh, great insight. I've, I've had to learn it from the other side uh, throughout my career. Cause I've, I've never been on the defense side, but I've, I've we've got a couple of lawyers that were on the defense side at our office and, and just in talking to folks you get an understanding that you need to get that information in front of uh, the decision maker. And so it's always a balancing act between, you know, one of the reasons I like um, taking most of my cases all the way to trial is not only because I feel as though that's when you get the best value in settlement, uh, for, for obvious reasons, the pressure being right there uh, on the uh, insurance company, the decision makers. Um uh, but also, I, I I figure that by then everybody's very well educated, uh, and I and I and I won't do like a very detailed demand letter because um, I don't feel the need to educate anybody on what's going on. They they either know what's going on and they're prepared to settle, or they don't. Now, if you're trying to settle a case earlier on, you have to balance. Well, what do I want to do? I want to reveal everything or. Do I want to hold something back in case the case doesn't settle? Or, but, but in turn, will that potentially lead to the reserves not being as high as they could be uh, if I do uh, harp and explain why I think this particular fact is, is just so helpful for my case? And so, um, you know, on a case-by-case basis and on a client-by-client basis, you figure out uh, the best way to do that. But I am a proponent in the right case of uh, doing a settlement video and having witnesses that would testify at trial, uh, give little snippets of what essentially would be the direct testimony. And then my getting on the video and giving uh, a little vignette of what a portion of closing argument might be. Uh, I think another thing that's very important and, um, you know, it takes time and, and uh, for me personally, really over the last I'd say six years or so, I've I've tried and gone to trial uh, a lot more than in the previous seven years of my career, um, uh, and and that and that is by going to trial and uh, showing them that you're willing to do that by going there and showing them that you're uh, able to do it successfully, but that also you're you have you have no hesitation in asking the jury for a large amount. Well, well, now you've created a lot of pressure. And so then uh, when you go to an, uh, a defense lawyer, you submit a demand and you put in that demand or you put in that settlement video that you intend to ask a jury for 10 or 20 or $50 million, when you go to uh, trial, they know that that's true. And they take that into consideration. So there's really no substitute for that. I would uh, certainly encourage young lawyers to try to get to trial Uh, as often as possible and to push the envelope uh with respect to your damages request a little thing that i always say to lawyers in my office when i ask uh they're going to trial well what are you what are you going to ask the jury for and they give an amount and i say well why not ask for this and it's a higher amount and they'll say well then i'm worried that uh it'll you know sticker shock, the jury will award less. I said, well, let me get this straight. You think you're going to be awarded less by asking for more? Uh, or put another way, are you going to get more by asking for less? And so I I am very much a proponent of pushing the envelope because I think it can effectively be done when you start in jury selection and all the way through, make it clear what you're asking for, uh, that uh, uh, you can ask for big numbers. So when you demonstrate the ability to do that that helps considerably in, in mediation. At the beginning you mentioned that I've had some eight-figure settlements. I think some of those eight-figure settlements would not have been as high as they were. Maybe not all. Maybe all of them wouldn't have been as high as they were uh, if me and or our firm did not have a track record of success at trial. I think that's a major uh, driving factor. Um, and then and then uh, uh, just showing them how prepared you are. Give them a demonstrative exhibit early. Um, I'm not saying prepare your whole trial early, that can be very costly, but uh, maybe a key damages demonstrative you put together and you put it with your settlement demand package to show just how just how devoted you are to this case and what you're prepared to do at trial. And I think that can be very effective too in, in bringing up settlement uh, uh, numbers,
0: what, what your case settles for. You talked a little bit about uh, demonstratives there. You talked about uh, a model earlier. Where are you in the importance of visuals? And do you prefer high-tech visuals? Or are you more low-tech with, you know, the the human brain and the spine spinal cord model right there? Uh, what's your preference with that? So I, I like them all. Um I like the high tech stuff, so I'll, I'll get an I'll get
2: an animator, an illustrator involved. I'll get um, I'll put together PowerPoints as it relates to liability, where you know I'm clicking on boxes and and things are popping up, and it's it's very um, interesting, very CSI. You know, we talk a lot about how jurors these days see the TV shows and uh, they really want the high tech um, demonstration. So I, I think it's important to have a little bit of that. But I also like the flipboard. Um, uh, I like a flipboard where uh, during trial, particularly if you're going to have a long trial, uh, keep track of stuff. Um, maybe it's on damages and you're keeping track of all the ailments. Um, and, and every time a witness uh, says something uh, about an element of damages, you write it down and, and lo and behold, by the end of the trial, you've got a whole... Uh, board filled with uh, what the plaintiff is going through or on liability um, uh, one of an, one of the important hallmarks of fetal distress in an obstetrical case if you're alleging brain damage from the delay in the delivery of a child is uh, decelerations in the fetal monitor strip and the more of those the more uh, it is evidence of fetal distress that the baby's not getting oxygen and so and so in that case, Uh, from witness to witness, I was writing on the board right in front of the jury, every deceleration in a particular time frame. And by the time we got to the end of the trial, you know, there must have been 40, 50 decelerate, I mean, tons of decelerations on that chart. And so over the course of a three week trial, the jury remembers, look at all the instances where there was an indication that the baby wasn't doing well. So I think there's great utility in both the high tech and the low tech. And I do like the, the actual physical models. You, you mentioned like the spine. I think that's great. Uh, I like to create my own world in the courtroom, whether it's, whether it's, uh, you know, with, with Mr. Spine where I'm, where I'm explaining, uh, you know, what all the different areas of the spinal cord are about or cervical thoracic lumbar, uh you know whatever the case may be I, lo- I love doing that. I also like uh, using my space wisely. so for example, we had a witness who claimed she saw something. it was a case where uh, a 13 year old boy was killed by an ambulance and she claimed she saw something uh, uh, with respect to the uh, incident she was you know maybe hundred or 150 feet away and and she said and then I, I saw, uh, the boy go up in the air and come down. And, uh, what I did was I walked around the courtroom and I said, okay, so you're over here. And I, you know, and I was, I was standing where she would have been. Then I walked over to another area and the ambulance is over here. Right. And then the boy on the bicycle is over here. Right. And then they came together in this fashion. Right. And, and, and lo and behold, the jury could see spatially that, uh, there was no way she could have seen. She would ha- she would have to have X ray vision to see through the ambulance. There's no way she could have seen what she claims she saw, and it destroyed the credibility of her story. And so, you know, whether it's high or low tech demonstratives, whether you're using the space within the courtroom, it's all it's it's all about uh, touching on the audio visual uh, learning that the that the jury. Uh, does,
0: and, and not just learning, but remembering, doing it in such a way that they remember. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You got to engage their senses. You got to keep it interesting because if they're not paying attention to you, I mean, what are they paying attention to?
2: <laughs> yeah, right. And and as and as the plaintiff's lawyer with the burden of proof, we get the first crack. Uh, we get to go first. And so it should be our uh, desire and our goal to exert as much control over that which the jury hears from beginning to end. Uh, that's our job. And I think it's our job to be, uh, uh, whether I don't know if entertaining is the right word. Cause I'm not talking entertaining like it's a, you know, like it's a variety show, but I mean entertaining in the sense that you're keeping their attention. You're keeping the jurors attention and you always have energy. I always, I say to myself every morning I go to trial, I say to myself, you need to be the most energetic lawyer in the courtroom. When you stand up, you want the jury to be excited. You don't want the jury to kind of sit back in their chair, not this guy again, because then you're in trouble. You want the jury to be excited that you're getting up to do
0: something. Now, in Illinois, I want to ask you about this, because in Illinois, one of the states where you can't make a per diem damages argument, um, I know that in other states, that's permissible, but in Illinois we have to find other ways to make our case to the jurors, especially when you have a permanent injury type case about how this is going to affect them for the rest of your life. How do you show the logic behind your ask um, in your closing argument without making an impermissional per diem type argument? Right. and I So
2: I think one of the most powerful jury instructions uh, for damages in Illinois, particularly for a young person who's been injured, is the instruction that tells the jury that you do not reduce non-economic damages in the future to present cash value. And I think some lawyers mistakenly believe that that's a concept that is lost on the jurors. Uh, But I have had other experiences. I had a a blue collar guy, not, uh, not super well educated, uh, by no means unintelligent, um, but just, you know, not educated formally uh, and, uh, he came up to me afterwards. I had, I had gone through my argument on that. And I, I explained, uh, that, that, uh, what that means, and here's kind of how I do it. What it means when future non-economic damages like pain and suffering, loss of a normal life are not reduced to present cash value. That means the pain that the plaintiff is going to feel in 2040, 2050, 2060, 2070, 2080. That needs to be compensated at dollars in terms of uh, 2040 $20, dollars, 2050 $20, dollars, 2060, $20, 2070, $20, 2080 $20, dollars. And so to give a little context to that, to look forward 50 years, 40, 50, 60 years, let's look backwards. Let's look at what the dollar was in 1980, 1970, 1960, when gas was a quarter. Uh, So what does that mean as far as what appropriate compensation is for the fact that this uh, child is going to be suffering pain and is going to be suffering loss of a normal life in 2060, 2070, 2080? Um, and, And sometimes what you do is you put, a number that has some relationship to the life expectancy of the plaintiff, you know, 60 years, uh, $600,000 or $6 million, depending on the severity of the injury. Um, so that's not per diem. And I think that's been challenged in the appellate courts and there's nothing uh, inappropriate about it so long as you don't make that one-to-one connection. Uh, and uh, that's, that's I think, a very powerful uh, jury instruction. Uh, and then, Um, you know, there, there are other arguments in closing that I just think are essential. So future, future medical, uh, you want to talk about how that keeps the plaintiff safe. Uh, that's how you, that's how you make sure that the plaintiff, uh, uh, is in as little pain as possible. He's still going to have pain, uh, but it can be mitigated. Uh, if you allow for the spinal cord stimulator and the battery replacements over the course of his lifetime, uh, uh or for example, you have a case where the plaintiff so badly injured that the defense is saying there's a limited life expectancy. I always get into that with the life expectancy expert. I say, well, how's the plaintiff going to die? And they'll say, well, uh, it, there's a lot of different ways that uh, children with cerebral palsy, uh, may die, uh, early but the leading cause would be uh, pneumonia. All right, well, how do we prevent pneumonia? Let's talk about that. How many nurses is it gonna take at home? What equipment is it gonna take? What kind of monitoring? What can we do to prevent this? Uh, And you try to bolster the need for the future medical care uh, in that regard. And then you make the point to the jury, uh, future medical care is, the plaintiff's just a middleman. That that money passes through. They don't get to keep it. They just hold onto it until eventually they have to give it to a doctor. Um, and you and you want to make that point as an example. So, um, uh, depending on the depending on the category of damages, there are plenty of ways to make effective uh, arguments uh, other than other than per diem, and you know those are just
0: a few. Um, another element of damage only applies in certain cases. Obviously, is a uh, wrongful death cases. Um, what are your advice for effective methods to get a jury not just to feel sorry for, but to effectively compensate family members for losing a loved one?
2: Yeah, and I'm I'm such a believer in um, I'm such a believer in jurors by and large getting things right. You know, the the collective wisdom of 12 people uh you know you can't you can't put lipstick on a pig uh and expect to get some magical uh, damages award and so particularly in wrongful death cases uh it's really our job to make sure that the relationship between the decedent and the heirs uh comes through appropriately that 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 we don't do something to get in the way of the jury uh seeing just truly how important that relationship uh, was Um, So, I mean, in in wrongful death cases, uh, I I think it's so important, number one in jury selection, to make sure that uh, you figure out, confront it directly, uh, whether or not anybody thinks that a wrongful death case is really unnecessary, that the person's gone, there's nothing that can be done, this is blood money, the plaintiffs just want a pound of flesh. And so you want, I ask it directly. I think some lawyers are afraid that it poisons the well when you do that during jury selection. And I, I disagree. And here's my experience that I think is is most effective is when you ask those tough questions where you're wondering, oh, am I, am I poisoning the well? Am I, Am I putting a seed in someone's mind that wouldn't have otherwise been there by asking this question? And the answer is no, because what you'll get Is number one, you'll get people that will acknowledge, yes, I I agree. I think wrongful death cases lack utility; can't bring the person back, can't put a price on a life. Uh, God's will—you get you get some of that as well. Uh, Certain jurors, uh, whether it's a death case or or even an injury case, think that uh, things are just meant to be, and so you want to make sure that those folks that are not going to follow the law, because that's really what that is—is folks that aren't going to follow the law that they're figured out but once they expose themselves anybody that's willing to raise their hand and say yes i i have trouble with wrongful death damages then you ask does anybody else feel like uh, mr smith even a little bit and you'll get some more hands and you might have some other folks that uh will acknowledge and questioning that they deserve to be disqualified but then you ask the flip side of it uh uh, and if you've created a good environment with jury selection where, where people feel free to share and they're able to open up, then you'll get people that'll say, well, no, I, I think it's important for accountability. You know, and, 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 and what you're really trying to get is you're trying to get the jurors to say the things that you're thinking without saying it to them, because it's much more powerful if they come to that conclusion. Then somebody says that, well, no, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be compensation. You know, The, the loved one's that are left behind deserve compensation too. And then you ask, and then you, and then a lot of times what I like to ask is I play devil's advocate. I say, well, and I, will kind of reiterate, well, yeah, but what about the fact that you can't bring the person back? And what does the, what do those folks typically do when they're confronted with the devil's advocates position? They dig in their heels, right. And they start making arguments, you know, and they, they turn into the plaintiff's lawyer. They start making arguments, that you're going to be making and other jurors are hearing them for the first time, fellow juror. And then you get other people that raise their hand to agree with that potential juror. Um, And so I think that can be, I think that can be very valuable and should be confronted directly in wrongful death cases. Um, And then, and then really, uh, uh, and then really, again, going back to that diligence of making sure you've got the right witnesses that can, articulate uh, that can articulate the uh, loss that was suffered uh, that can really talk about who the decedent was what the decedent meant to the heirs uh, get, getting in somebody not not only the heirs but also somebody who is neutral who doesn't have anything to gain uh, personally to come in and talk about the type of person that the decedent was and, um, and and usually by the end of a wrongful death case, the jury has a pretty good sense as to what type of person the decedent was, what type of relationships the decedent in the
0: years had. Uh, uh, that usually shines through after a full trial. Well, Pat, I, I really appreciate you sharing all this with us. I know this has been very informative for me. I think it'll be really informative for anyone out there who's you know, has a big case coming up or is looking how to work up a case, present their case to trial. Uh, but before I let you get out of here, I know you've been very generous with your time. If someone wants to get a hold of you to ask a question or refer to the case, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: Uh, email probably P Salvi, S A L V as in Victor I, two at salvilaw.com, P Salvi two at Salvi uh, or our office, three one two three seven two one two two seven. Thanks, man.
0: Pat, I really appreciate this. And thanks again for your time and sharing all this great stuff with us. Thanks for having me. It's, it's the stuff that, um, I, as
2: you know, we enjoy talking about. So it's, it's all
1: right. That was Pat Salvi talking about damages. What an awesome interview. What, um, what insight. It's so incredible to hear from a really great young trial lawyer how he achieves um, fantastic verdicts and and great justice for clients. Uh, It was really interesting. Um, Like we always do at the end of these podcasts, I'm going to give you sort of my 30-second trial tip. Matt's going to do the same. Um, Right now, as we're still sort of stuck in quarantine, the courts are closed, depositions are slow to come by, um, we're still trying to work cases. What I found is, is reading a ton about how to make my cases better has helped me. And so my 32nd tip is go pick up a book called running with the bulls by Nick Rowley and Courtney Rowley. Um, they're two fantastic trial lawyers in California. The book is all about this. It's all about how you figure out your client's damages and then how you frame them so that you can settle cases before trial, um, for the, the maximum justice, the maximum, uh, Dollar value you can get for them. I'm I've read it a couple times. I'm rereading it again. It has a lot of uh, you know workbook sort of activities in it as well that I think will
0: really help you think about damages. That's a great point, John. It's always good to read. It's always good to hear about what other great trial lawyers are doing. You know, it's it's the practice a lot. We're never finished. We're always trying to learn to get better. Um, after talking with Pat, uh, my my tip is has to do with the visuals and demonstrative exhibits. He has, you know, a good philosophy about, you know, keeping it interesting, keeping it fresh, using different things to keep the jury invade, uh, engaged. So I, I think the key to that is planning these exhibits in advance. You know, you want to have your demonstrative exhibits ready well in advance of trial. I know other times in the past I've seen attorneys scramble at the last minute and it doesn't end up turning out the way they that they want them to go. So... Plan your visuals, your demonstrative exhibits in advance. Have as many of them as possible. You really want to be explaining the key elements of your case in visual form because th- that's how juries digest information. That's the most effective way to present your case on behalf of your client is by having compelling visuals about you know the intersection where the collision occurred, the injury that your client suffered. You, know, you can have the, the visual spine or an animation or something along those lines. And then when it comes to, you know, ongoing damages, you know, you can have a day in the life video. You can have some sort of other visual representation to show the ongoing issues associated with your client's injuries. So that, that's my tip. Do, do as many as you can, take them early, and really highlight the key points of your case with visuals.
1: Absolutely. Jurors are used to watching uh, courtroom TV, essentially. They think that our jobs are just like TV lawyering. And so you have to put on a little bit of a show in that sense and keep them engaged. And so you're absolutely right. I think demonstratives are key. That's awesome.
0: And with that, we're going to wrap up our episode for today. I want to thank Pat Salvi again. And remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, um, or you can send emails on trial at gmail.com or you can troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at On Trial podcast.
1: Please also rate, download, give us any feedback you can, um, help us get the word out, share this podcast. And if you are interested in being a guest, shoot us an email and let us know. We're always happy to talk to as many trial lawyers as we can to learn the best tactics and, and, and tips to move your cases forward and to get the best amount of justice. So until next time, I'm John Rizvold. I'm Matt Heimlich. We'll see you on trial.